Welcome! You are about to enter the second season of the Masters of Deceit series called Symbiote. What lies within? First, I would like to personally thank you for listening to the first season, Masters of Deceit. In your spare time, I would appreciate it if you could write an honest review of this podcast. Any feedback is welcome and would give me invaluable insight in how I could make this podcast even better. Now, Season 2 will take you to another level in the series with a different twist than the first. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Symbiote. What Lies Within is a Christian fiction novel created by Jeffrey W. Chapman. All names, characters, places, and incidents either are the product of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to any actual persons living or dead, events or locales is entirely coincidental. No part of this book may be reproduced or transmitted in any form or by any means electronic or mechanical, including photocopying, recording, or by any information storage and retrieval system, without permission in writing from the copyright owner. Without further delay, sit back, relax, and enjoy the audio narration of Symbio, What Lies Within, Book 2 and Season 2 of the Masters of Deceit series. Preface We perceive time as a linear progression of events happening within our sphere of observance. But if you could visualize those individual spheres surrounding us, you would see a multitude of such objects intersecting in and out with others. Some expand as a shared experience grows in a fixed point in time, while others retract as the paths of individuals deviate. To put it bluntly, there are always things happening at this very moment we're not aware of, that may or may not affect us, presently or in the near future. This novel, Symbiote, what Lies Within represents a separate sphere of observance when considering the previous novel, Masters of Deceit. This story happens at the very same time as Masters of Deceit, but to different individuals. What happens is no less important, but is integral to the progression of the series. If you are familiar with Masters of Deceit, you will recognize particular events occurring in this novel, representing the juxtaposition of spheres of observance. However, if you are not familiar with the previous novel, it will not detract from the story. Your sphere of observance will just remain fixed. Symbiote, what lies within is a necessary story to tell, since it's an integral component to the complete union of both spheres that will occur in the third installment of this series to be told later. Chapter, The Children of Barabbas. Consciousness seemed far away as he labored through the intense nightmare of rapidly changing dreamscapes. As each dreamscape changed, his body tensed, his breathing became more rapid, and a pathetic gasp escaped his lips when he heard disconcerting voices close by. In previous dreams, the voices spoke softly to him, but tonight there was a sense of urgency, giving birth to shouts, screams, and even snarls. If not for his paralyzed body induced by fear, he would have covered his ears from the unrelenting mind-numbing shrieks. Tonight the realism of the dream was so vivid, he actually found it difficult to distinguish it from reality. It was a dream state he wasn't accustomed to. He was familiar with serene settings, such as a brook of ice-cold mountain spring water, following a twisting path through a forest, a white-sanded beach with indigo water and white fumes overlapping the shore's edge, or even a mountaintop overlooking white, puffy clouds passing at lower altitudes. However, tonight it was a barrage of disturbing images. At first, he saw a dark, foreboding shape trying to take form directly above his bed. As he lay there watching in curiosity, a scarcely perceivable wail slowly increased in volume. In tandem with the increasing wail, the dark shape slowly solidified for some insidious reason. 
This was a new change to the dreams he normally experienced when the wailing reached an ear-splitting volume. He knew something was wrong. The dark shape solidified to resemble the outline of a person hovering over his bed. It possessed no distinguishable features other than two voids, darker than black, where its eyes should have been. These voids threatened to suck the life from his mortal soul if he dared to stare too long. The man tried to cover his ears but couldn't move. The dreamscape inexplicably changed from his room to outside, where he saw a large office building under the glow of a blood-red hunter's moon. Strangely, he was still lying on his back, looking at the building, when he noted there were now two dark shapes hovering over him. The wailing of the second shape differed from the first, but the combination of both voluminous sounds assaulted his ears even more. Not being able to turn his head, he watched the building's windows turn a sickly yellow color and then dark red. Without warning, the windows shattered, yielding countless people in obvious pain, plummeting to their deaths. He watched in horror as their bodies, covered with yellow and black sores oozing blood and puss, impacted the pavement. Unable to close his eyes, a moan came from his mouth as he tried to say he didn't want to see any more. Again, the dreamscape changed. This time he was watching several people in laboratory coats, standing in a circle, slowly moving their arms up and down. The laboratory was completely equipped with stainless steel furniture, littered with beakers and broken flasks, and poorly lit with fluorescent lighting. He watched in curiosity as the scientists continued their weird movement, when another sound joined the other two dark figures. Now able to turn his head, he saw an additional dark figure hovering over him, all three focused on him, without emotion. The man looked back at the scientists and observed an ethereal-like smoke emanating from each of them. Above their heads, it intertwined, moved several feet higher, separated into thousands of small strands, and then dispersed in different directions. He looked back at the dark figures. The first dark figure drew closer and blew its hot breath, from a non-existent mouth, on the man's face, forcing his eyes closed. When he was able to open his eyes again, he moaned in horror as he watched scenes flashing before him of sick and dying people all over the world, exhibiting the same sores as the people falling from the office building. Each scene lasted only a few seconds, but he saw the pain of millions screaming and dying in the streets of Paris, London, Baghdad, Hong Kong, Sydney, Los Angeles, and Juan Cairo, everywhere. When the last city disappeared from sight, the dreamscape returned to the man's bedroom, but instead of three dark figures hovering close together above him, there were seven. Without a sound, they enigmatically focused on the man for a minute and then, in unison, released an ear-splitting wail. The room immediately turned white, the dark figures disappeared, and the man finally awoke from his incessant ordeal of torment. He lay there, desperately trying to catch his breath. With a sweat-drenched body and ears still ringing from the now absent wails he still imagined, hearing in a distant echoing of the corners of his mind, the prophet of the children of Barabbas, steady himself as best as he could before sliding off his bed. He kneeled, clasped his hands tightly together, and asked for understanding. As the sun slowly peeked over the horizon, the farm rooster jumped onto the old wooden fence and ruffled its feathers. So far, it was the same as any other day. Jump and proclaim his dominance over this land and his female counterparts, and strike fear and mourning under any foolish enough to challenge him. It shifted back and forth for a while, then lifted its head when a loud clanging startled him. The rooster immediately jumped off its perch and ran for cover. The clanging of the bell this early in the morning was a call for a meeting of all brothers and sisters. Though rarely used this early, it indicated the prophet needed to meet with his disciples at the center hall. 
Everyone quickly rose from their slumber after realizing the prophet must have had a vision. A buzz slowly arose in the compound as the brethren rushed to prepare themselves for the meeting. Shortly later, a cram center hall, with nearly 300 followers, waited impatiently for God's message. The sisters were all gathered together in the back, where many of them had to stand, since the majority of the seats were taken by men. They were dressed in simple one-piece dresses in white, pink or blue, much like the Amish, while the brothers wore short-sleeved white, button-down shirts and blue jeans. The talking immediately subsided and the room fell silent as an oversized brother made his way up to the platform, took center stage, and held up his hands. Today is a great day, he said. A great day indeed, responded everyone. The oversized man nodded in agreement. Today we will hear from God. With our ears open fully, they replied. Yes, open your hearts for today the prophet Barabbas shares God's heart with you. And we are truly blessed, they all responded. With those last words, everyone lowered their heads and awaited their prophet. They didn't wait long. Prophet Barabbas entered the hall from a side door adjacent to the stage, made his way to the oversized brother, and gently touched the back of the man's head. The oversized man silently made his way back to his seat, never once lifting his head. Dressed only in a long white robe, Prophet Barabbas looked over his children with pride. His heart jumped as he recalled his vision and how his children would be pleased to hear what God had to say to them. Taking a deep breath, he proclaimed, Arise, my children, and hear what God has to say to you. On a continent other than North America, several scientists in white lab coats hovered around a large computer monitor as the results of the seventh and final experiment were slowly being determined. Statistical data was being crunched from all seven experiments to determine the levels of purity and virulence. They waited impatiently as the computer continued to perform all the necessary calculations. After several minutes, the results were in, and they all huddled about the monitor. They smiled as the data told them the biological weapon was 100% infective and 100% fatal to non-inoculated individuals. Chapter Barcenist The Swiss bank account showed the deposit of $6 million under one of many aliases of the hired specialist. Since this was only half the money promised for the job, the other half would be transferred after the deed was done. It was an easy job and shouldn't pose much of a risk, considering the lack of security. It was almost hard to take it seriously. However, with the significant monetary transaction from his clients, the job elevated itself to highest priority. Soon he'd survey the area, acquire blueprints and inside information of the layout, and then purchase the appropriate tools for the job. In other words, business as usual and a walk in the park. Several weeks later, on a warm mid-August Sunday evening, a security guard drove up to the gate and flashed his ID card. As usual, he was several minutes early for his midnight shift, giving him time to relax before making his rounds. The guard at the gate greeted him and allowed him to pass. Driving past several large storage facilities, the guard finally parked his car next to the administrative building to check in with his supervisor. With 20 minutes to spare before he was officially on duty, he unpacked the duffel bag from his car and transferred it to the site's vehicle he was going to use to make his rounds. This brought a smile to the guard's face. Locking the bag in the trunk, he joined some of the other guards in the security room to make idle chat. When his round started, he drove slowly and purposefully to the first storage site, parked the car and the building. He communicated, through his walkie-talkie, to security that he was entering his first building, 
Slowly walking through the main routes in the building, the guard checked the large storage bins, reaching from the floor to the ceiling, nearly 40 feet up. Boxes upon boxes of company files and hard copies were stored in flimsy cardboard frames. Several sections were reserved for different companies, while others from smaller businesses, not able to afford the reserved spots, were jumbled together in a neglected motive. Several areas out of the security camera's view required special attention and were reported back as in order. For the next two hours, the security guard repeated his checks throughout his route. He rushed through his checks in every building, so he'd have more time to spend in a building near the end of his rounds. Upon finally entering this building, he quickly removed his duffel bag from the trunk and rushed toward the door. He called security, told them he was entering the last building and waited for a response. Before entering, he turned on the high beam of his flashlight and aimed it right at the security camera, just inside the door, briefly blinding it. He flung the duffel bag behind a stack of boxes, turned his flashlight beam to normal, and continued walking as if nothing happened. As expected, security called him asking what had happened to the camera, and of course, he pleaded ignorance. This was going to be the hardest part of the job, since it called for both carrying too many bulky items and hoping for the continual ignorance of underpaid security guards. The security guard walked underneath the camera, removed a carefully hidden taser, and zapped it. Hey Jason, this is Barry again. We just lost camera one in building 14A, said an agitated voice in the security guard's walkie-talkie. I'm right here, Bar, and I see nothing wrong. Everything's in order. Just make a report for maintenance to check it out in the morning, will ya? The guard said. Roger that, Jace. Barry out. The security guard walked back to where he had previously flung the duffel bag and acquired it. After locking the door, he walked briskly to a predetermined area, quickly moved several heavy boxes, opened the bag, and removed his personally built incendiary device that wouldn't leave a trace of arson after the fire. The guard quickly attached the appropriate wires and remote detonator, placed his bag within one of the boxes, and replaced all the boxes in their original positions. Checking his watch, he realized he had to move. This was the last building to be rigged over the past several days, and he didn't need to slack off now. While feverishly double-checking his work, he mentally reviewed how all the incendiary devices were strategically placed throughout the complex to cause efficient spread of the flames and was pleased with his work. The fire would be uncontrollable until it fully burned out. Several minutes later, he emerged from the building and notified security that the storage area was secure. He had one more building to check before he could relax with his fellow guards in the office. At 2.47 in the morning, a remote incendiary device was triggered. As the incendiary device crackled to life, becoming white-hot, the surrounding boxes and papers burst into flames without difficulty. The humidity-free environment and lack of water sprinklers contributed to the rapid spread of the flames. Adjoining buildings with similar devices shortly received their permission to spontaneously ignite. Continuing to grow in temperature, the devices fueled the life of the surrounding flames, and once they reached a specific temperature, disintegrated into ash, mimicking the surrounding burnt embers. Back at the security office, it was business as usual for the scantily paid security guards. Unbeknownst to them, both a smoke detector indicator and siren on the security console had been previously tampered with by the introduction of a corrosive solution that, if ever analyzed, mimicked natural wire deterioration. Those precious lost minutes allowed the fire to rage out of control. Soon the blaze illuminated the night sky, 
causing numerous frantic calls to the fire department from distraught security guards. Later, as the fire burned out of control, it was elevated to a 10-alarm fire. There was no hope of containing it. As the fire continued to consume all of the precious documents from various businesses, the on-duty guards were questioned by the local police and then allowed to go home. The guard known as Jason, a concocted alias, drove away from the storage site and performed several quick precautionary maneuvers with his car to ensure he wasn't being followed. Satisfied, he drove to his hotel room, changed his clothes, and flagged a taxi to Newark International Airport. Dressed in a business suit and carrying only his laptop briefcase, he waited patiently for his flight. He glanced at the latest update from CNN about the devastating fire at one of Iron Mountain's large data storage facilities in New Jersey. Millions of documents were being destroyed as multiple fire departments struggled to contain the blaze. Instead of shedding any light on how the fire started, the commentator criticized the storage company for not having a sprinkler system. When a representative for the company was asked why there wasn't a sprinkler system, he clearly stated that water damages documents just as badly as a fire would. The man at the airport smiled. Everything was going according to plan. He opened his laptop, connected it to his cell phone for a secure link, and accessed his private Swiss bank account. All 12 million was sitting there, smiling at him. In North America, two recently merged pharmaceutical companies, Jensum and Pentamer, had been secretly funded years ago to research cutting-edge science for human gene repair. However, the group that funded this research was hard at work expanding the original experiments into a biological weapon of utter destruction in the form of a genovarian. The result was an RNA genovarian developed to attack a benign gene, forcing it to overproduce a specific protein and resulting in the eventual death of the host. The perfect vaccine was that everyone previously injected with the proper amount of the protein would be immune to the genovarian, while those not inoculated would die. Unbeknownst to the arsonist, it was this original research by Jensum that was the main target of the fire. Footnote. Genovarian is a fictional virus particle able to infect mammalian cells. The name was derived from two words, varian and gene. Varian signifies that it has a spheroidal shape, while the gene portion of the word indicates the varian attacks a specific site on the DNA molecule.